it's not really about having words for the sake of it or trying to sort of get the one up on somebody because you know more words than them it's all about enjoyment and it's all about the importance of being able to express yourself and communicate effectively and clearly plus as i say to have those brilliant discussions about why our vocabulary is as wonderful as it is Hello and welcome back to series two of Rosetta Stone's More Than Word podcast, in which we talk to different people and experts in the field of language and linguistics to answer your most pressing questions about learning another language. My name is Alex Rawlings and I was named Britain's most multilingual student in 2012, and I'll be your guide for this series, providing some tips I've picked up on my way to fluency in 12 different languages. Last episode, our guest recommended that vocabulary was the first thing to concentrate on when you start learning another language. So today, that's exactly what we're going to do. Rejoining us for series two is the UK's most renowned lexicographer, Susie Dent, who's going to be talking to us about why vocabulary is so important. And we'll also be joined by Chester Santos, US memory champion and founder of the business memoryschool.net. He will be giving us some principles on improving our memory and how to apply that to learning new vocabulary. You can also join me and Susie in an exercise where we try to memorize 15 random words in a row. And as ever, I'll be summarizing the top tips for learning vocabulary for you at the end. Enjoy. So Chester, perhaps we could start with you. I'm fascinated at the fact that I'm in the presence of a US memory champion. What exactly is a US memory champion though? And how did you end up with that title? Yeah, so Thank you for having me on, Alex. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking with you today. I did win the United States National Memory Championship. It's an annual competition held here in the US. It's been held at various locations over the years. Nowadays, the finals is held at MIT, uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology over on the East Coast. It's a one-day competition. We cover memorizing decks of playing cards, uh, strings of computer-generated random digits, um, hundreds of names, poetry, uh, that's all covered in this one-day competition. And basically, uh, you see who can memorize the most, uh, the, the largest amount of data in the least amount of time, but also with 100% accuracy. So some of the scores, I used to memorize a shuffle deck of playing cards in a little bit under 90 seconds. I used to be able to memorize about 130 plus digit sequence of computer generated random digits forwards and backwards in five minutes, uh, 100 plus names in 15 minutes. So those are, those are some of the things you need to do to win the United States Memory Championship. Fantastic. And Susie, it's great to speak with you again. Welcome back to the second series of More Than Words. Um, I remember last time we talked a lot about our common love for language and our passion for being multilingual and all sorts of things like that. But really, I suppose what a lot of people know you as is a person of words, you know, someone for whom vocabulary and lexicon is your bread and butter. Where did your passion for words come from? Yes, well, I think in the in the first series, I told the story of how I would sit in the bath and stare protractedly at shampoo bottles and notice that there were different languages listing the different ingredients which must let's face it must be the most boring ingredients ever well the most boring words ever but I was somehow transfixed these looked incredibly exotic these different alphabets I think there was probably a bit of Cyrillic in there but I obviously didn't know it at the time um and I was very old school in the way that I then progressed because I would genuinely sit down um 
our house was always freezing so I would find the warmest spot in the sun ever and just sit down and read German and French vocabulary books um they weren't even stories they were they were lists of vocabulary which were obviously thematically organized um and it would be the same in the back of the car etc so I wish I could explain where that passion came from, Alex. But for me, it was a sort of oasis. I didn't have a particular goal in mind. I wasn't at the time thinking when I get to Germany, I will be able to use all these things. It was just the joy of those words themselves. So vocabulary is, is, is definitely one of the most important parts of learning a language as we've heard on the last episode. But I mean, I must confess to both of you as someone who loves languages, loves learning languages, Learning vocabulary is not necessarily my favorite part of learning a language. I often <laughs> find it to be a bit of a slog. Um, and I do, I'm well, I studied German and Russian at university. And in my first year of beginner's Russian, I remember every Friday afternoon, our teacher would give us a vocabulary list of sometimes up to 600 words that we would have to memorize for the test on Monday. And I think my average score for the whole of that year was not more than about 24%. 600 uh, is... That's, I have to say, very savage. Six Very savage. Words. Yeah. And very random words, I think, as well. Because when you, when you start learning vocabulary lists that are so um, extensive and so large, I think you start going well beyond words that you ever thought you ever would have wanted to learn. So, you know, I remember spending my weekend as an undergraduate student, you know, in the library trying to memorize all these different Russian words for types of boot or different types of snow or a white picket fence and all this stuff. And I remember feeling a little bit disheartened by all this stuff. But I remember some people in the class did really, really well. And some people were getting 80, 85 percent on every test. But the next year when we arrived in Russia, I actually remember that those weren't necessarily the people who were most confident talking and they weren't mm -hmm. necessarily the people who were able to kind of get us from Moscow Domodilova airport to the center by asking for a train ticket. Because even though they had all this vocabulary, they couldn't necessarily use it to speak. Susie, I mean, have you had any experiences like that? Yeah, I think that was totally true of me. I had I had the uh, the vocab, but I didn't have the apparatus to put it together at all. And then I really wasn't prepared for people talking back at me either. So I might just recognize a word or two. But, you know, obviously there was a whole kind of grammatical structure embracing all of this that that made it very hard. Um, so the only way that I found of actually uh, learning that we've talked about this before Alex was was immersion essentially was to be there and then to pick up the vernacular because no textbook could actually you know prepare you for every eventuality only actually being there and and dealing with it can um, but just going back very quickly to vocabulary lists I mean you know I'm learning um, Spanish with Rosetta and I'm loving finding all the connections between French and English and and Spanish you know just this morning it was um, I was learning Manda for, for I send and I was thinking oh that's that's mandate as well and that's all sorts of you know different things uh, and Leo for I read and you know all, all of that stuff I'm I'm really loving it just finding the hidden threads between the languages and those are very obvious ones I suppose um, but that for me is a joy too. I absolutely agree. I mean, I really love it as well. Um, and, and one of the things that I really like about the Romance languages, obviously Spanish is the one I use the most out of them, is that sometimes the most kind of um, normal words sound very formal and almost a bit ridiculous to an English speaker's ear. I remember once being on the phone to a call centre um, and uh, the lady on the other line saying to me, no se retire, no se retire, you know, like don't retire yourself, which basically means don't hang up. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, wow. 
Do um, not withdraw. No, do not withdraw from the call. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, every time I find one of those words, I do have this kind of zing of excitement. Yeah, um, it is a zing. That's a good word. Maybe we, we project it onto the words. Maybe it's there in the words. But I feel like each word has its own kind of character, its personality, a colour that comes with it. And I get a bit of a kick out of it. I just want to take a moment to let our More Than Words listeners know that to start applying the tips that you're learning with us, Rosetta Stone has a special offer for all podcast listeners, which will arm you with everything you need to start learning on the go. Simply go to rosettastone.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you'll receive a special offer on all Rosetta Stone courses, including their lifetime subscription, which will give you access to all languages for life. The link is in the episode description, so just click through from there to start your own language learning journey today. Chester, maybe we could kind of ask you about this because it's it's really great to be joined by someone who actually understands how memory works and how learning works. I mean, my experience, and Susie and I have talked about this before, my experience of learning vocabulary has been the most effective way to do it has been to do it in a real context where I've needed the word. And that often means being in an immersed environment, such as being abroad. Um, Why is that? And is there anything we could be doing to make the learning process a bit smoother? Yeah, so when you're focusing on vocabulary that you need, uh, you're, you're more focused, right? You're paying more attention. Um, so you listed, you know, you said you had to memorize 600 plus words and they weren't the most interesting words to you, right? So that is a huge factor in learning and memory. Uh, what my role is, is I help people to commit things to memory, really anything at all, even things that at first they might not necessarily have that much interesting, they might find it boring, but it would be very useful for them to know this information. So I help make the whole process more interesting and more effective. There are really just three main principles that memory champions like myself use and that I teach people to put into practice in their career and personal lives. And one is creating visuals. So turn whatever it is that you want to remember into something that you can see. Uh, and a example quickly that I'll give in terms of names, that's always something people are, are interested in, in getting better at. Let's say you go to a party, you meet a lot of new people. Two weeks after the party, you're talking with one of your friends that was there with you, and they describe someone. Hey, do you remember Alex, that attorney that we met at the party? He's also a member of the tennis club. When your friend is describing that person to you, a lot of times you can picture very easily exactly who they're talking about. You might even remember what that person was wearing at the party, but a lot of times you can't come up with the name, right? Pretty common experience there. And this happens because when we are interacting with people in various ways, we actually see the face, right? We remember, that's why we remember the face because it's recorded into our visual memory, but we have much more difficulty remembering the name because it's more abstract to uh, the brain. So for names, I would visualize if I'm meeting someone named Mike, a microphone. If I'm meeting someone named Alice, I might picture a white rabbit because that reminds me of Alice in Wonderland. So first principle, visuals make it easier to remember. Second thing to keep in mind from there, involve additional senses if you can. Uh, as you do that, you'll, you will be activating more areas of your brain and building more and more connections in your mind to the information. So don't just see the, ra- the white rabbit, maybe even smell it or imagine that you're feeling uh, the fur or something like that. So more senses, again, activates more of the brain. Third principle to keep in mind is while you are seeing and experiencing this in your mind, make it strange, unusual, extraordinary in some way because there's a psychological aspect to human memory. If whatever room you're in right now, if an elephant crashed into that room, 
and it started to spray water all over you with its trunk, if that actually happened right now at this moment, you would probably remember that for the rest of your life, even 30 years from now. You'll never believe this. I was interviewing this memory guy on our show and an elephant just crashed into the room, right? Might be stuck there forever without you even trying to commit it to memory. So that's what I mean by this psychological aspect to human memory. When you can put those three things together, visuals, using additional senses as you can, and you make it all weird, crazy in some way, instantly it will become much easier to remember really anything at all, even these you know 500 plus words that you might not have been that interested in in the 600 word uh, list. So I was hoping we could go through a quick exercise uh, with you and Susie and you know the audience can follow along when they watch this uh, interview. It will show how to improve your memory, I think, in general. And then later on, um, when we have time, we can talk about how this would actually apply to vocabulary when learning a language. Okay. Susie, um, why do you think having such an extensive vocabulary is important for speaking a language fluently? Um, well, speaking, you know, I often get asked this about English vocabulary because um, I'm, you know, I often put out words of the day on, on social media and that kind of thing. And people will say, well, that's quite, it's a brilliant word, but no one else is going to understand it. So isn't that going to just make me sound a bit smug? And the answer I always give is, A, there's the joy in actually learning the, that vocabulary, but also, you know, it kind of raises a discussion. So people may not know to take an English word. They may not know apricity, which is a really old word for the warmth of the sun on your back on a really chilly winter's day and it's just we all know that feeling so you can use the word and then you can talk around it and it gets a whole discussion going about language which I think is really important but also there's been quite a lot of um, research done about what's called emotional granularity which is the ability to put feelings into words and psychologists have um, have sort of found that those with who are able to articulate what they're feeling or what they're thinking with a high degree of specificity um, actually then have lower levels of depression because they're able to express themselves in a way that they then feel has been either cathartic or that they can share it in a way that you know it doesn't then become something which is too personal and too bound up with themselves and, and just inexpressible so there's all sorts of, of good psychological reasons why actually being able to articulate clearly and effectively is a really good thing plus of course there's the confidence um, I think a lot of people and this is never more true than in a foreign language they will avoid certain situations because they don't feel they're equipped with the vocabulary to deal with them and that in in, in turn is going to then curtail their enjoyment of a situation you know if you're in a if you're in a foreign country and you're scared about going to one particular place because you're not sure you're going to be able to deal with it linguistically then that is restricting and and you know possibly taking you away from something that could be a really joyful experience so I don't think it's it's not really about having words for the sake of it or trying to sort of get the one up on somebody because you know more words than them it's all about enjoyment and it's all about the importance of being able to express yourself and communicate effectively and clearly plus as I say to have those brilliant discussions about why our vocabulary is as wonderful as it is. Absolutely um, I think it's probably also 
from from my perspective, I think it's quite important to express that there's a balance, though, as well, between aiming for kind of a really high vocabulary, but also understanding that not having a large vocabulary is a normal part of the learning process. Yes. Because um, I think we, we can often get so frustrated at not being able to be precise in the language that we're speaking. And I think that frustration can be quite a good feeling sometimes because it can motivate us to learn more. But it can also be a negative feeling if it puts us off or makes us feel like we're not making as much progress. Um, as we think we'd want to. So I often say the key with fluency or feeling fluent in a language is not necessarily having the largest vocabulary in the world, but kind of being confident and being um, self-assured about using what you've got to make a point. Yes. And never being scared, just go for it as well. Because, you know, how wonderful is it when somebody actually tries to express themselves in another language? And yes, you might get rebuffed because they'll start speaking English and then you just think, oh, what's the point? But if you persevere, it's just the most... Um, brilliant experience and also you know of course there will be areas that we don't we're not particularly interested in so we may not immerse ourselves in that vocabulary and that's absolutely fine um, and you know people often say that children's vocabulary is shrinking and I think there is a real concern certainly when it comes to English that there's a widening gap between kids who have a good vocabulary and those who don't but equally if you were to go to some of their kids and say tell me about your game tell me about you know, this particular game, they will have an entire lexicon devoted to that particular game that they're playing or whatever. So their vocabulary will be really strong in some areas and just not in others. Um, so I think it's it's definitely don't be afraid, go for it and just find what you're interested in because then you can follow your passion and the vocabulary will come from that. Absolutely. And I think that definitely applies to adult learners of foreign languages as well. You know, that maybe you'd feel very confident and very um, articulate on a specific topic in a language that you're learning and then it comes to something else um, that maybe you don't have such a strong emotional connection with or you, you haven't experienced directly and then it's just logical that you wouldn't necessarily have the same level of vocabulary or the yeah. same number of words I mean a weak spot for me in every language is football which I can't say I'm a huge <laughs> fan of yeah uh, even in English I get lost Yes, I know. If you're not if you're not involved in in golf or cricket or any of that stuff, then even for a native speaker, it's a total minefield. I'm with you on that one. Brilliant. Because I think, as Chester was telling us earlier, the best way to learn vocabulary is when you need it, right? When you yeah. actually need it. And I think talking to yourself and realizing that you don't know a word that you'd like to know, uh, or even I mean, it doesn't have to be in your head. You could write it down. For example, if you try journaling in your own in the, in the language that you're learning, you'll quickly identify what are the words that you're missing and that you're not yeah. able to talk about. And you know, once you've identified that need to know that word, I personally find it a lot easier to um, to then remember that word and acquire it as part of my vocabulary. But I guess this is always this is always a challenge I've had, Chester, with with vocabulary lists, which is kind of. I, I do feel sometimes like they're so abstract, they're so kind of unfriendly when I look at them, <laughs> you know, that I often do struggle to create that need for those words. I mean, what could, could you give us any advice on how to make the vocabulary that we know we, we know we should learn? How, to, how can we make it really kind of a necessity and really something that, that's a bit easier to do? Yeah. So again, if you need it, you found that you needed it in a real life situation and you didn't know the word, then all of a sudden you're going to focus and pay more attention, right? So that, that will automatically make you more effective in terms of memory and learning. But the issue is that all of these other words that would be incredibly useful for you to know, but when you're initially studying, uh, you're not, you don't have necessarily that, that interest, right? That focus. So that's where the techniques that I teach people come in. I teach you a much more fun and interesting 
uh, approach to use. Um, so whenever you and Susie are ready for it, I'm going to have you memorize a long list of boring random words that you would have no interest in and you would really you know, find it to be a, normally a very tedious exercise to try and commit these to memory, but we're going to learn a different approach. Just let me know when you're up for it, and then I think you'll have a better idea of what it is that I, I teach people to do. Esther, can I ask just one question? It, it, um, yep. Not necessarily related to vocabulary learning, but you were talking about um, remembering people's names. I always find when I'm being introduced to somebody, there's so much else going on. That, you know, there might be a sort of, I mean, pre-COVID, there might have been a shake of the hand or there might have been, you know, body language going on and you are intent on making a good impression. So I never actually hear the name. It literally just goes straight over my head. Um, I, I'm too focused on other things. So would you just say concentrate from the very beginning and know that you're going to need this name so actually listen out for it because my brain seems to just blank it every time yeah there's no getting around it I know it seems pretty obvious but that is a prerequisite <laughs> you have to pay attention and what you described is very very common so I'll quickly run through a four-step process step one I always say to immediately repeat the name and okay. shake their hand if you can but just get into the habit. If you meet someone named John, nice to meet you, John, or pleased to meet you, John. Uh, getting into that habit forces you to pay attention to the name every time for at least one second, okay. because that's the only way you could repeat it back, right? Yeah. So just start getting into that habit. Step two, ask them a question using their name. John, how do you know Chester? Or John, how long have you been with this organization? That's it. Just one question using name early on. That, focus you, foc that forces you to focus on the name even further, right? Step three, think of a connection between the name and anything at all that you already know. And that should take you a few seconds or less. So John, maybe think of John Lennon or John Adams, a president here in the US. That's it. And then step four, just whenever you leave the party, the meeting, whatever type of function it might be, say goodbye to people. Make it a point to say goodbye to people actually using uh, their name. So that, that should help you pay attention more <laughs> and you. focus more because it's tips. a prerequisite. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. That's very useful advice because I've always been the person who speaks lots of languages but can never remember anyone's name, <laughs> which has been a problem in multiple social and professional contexts. So yeah. I'm definitely going to try and make more of an effort with uh, your advice, Chester. And you see, I did it just now. I used your name uh, with responding to you. So Excellent. I guess that's no. part of the, nice. of the step. Well, Susie, do you think, are we ready to, um, to go through Chester's uh, memory experiment? I, I'm ready. I would just say that whenever I'm put on the spot, I always just fail uh, dramatically. <laughs> so I'm, I'm ready to fall. I'm ready to fail, but I'm also ready to take it on. Esther, we're putting our trust and faith in your hands. We may not be the best <laughs> guinea pigs you've ever had, but I think let's give it a go. And then we can talk afterwards about what's going on and, and what we can learn from it. Okay, cool. So just do your best. And I, I think it's good for people watching this later, you know, they can follow along and see how well they do. Um, so don't write this down. You cannot write this down. You cannot use any sort of electronic device. You're using nothing but your brain, nothing but your memory. People aren't used to doing this uh, nowadays. So I'm going to rattle off a long random list of words. It's going to be monkey, iron, rope, kite, house, paper, shoe, worm, envelope, pencil, river, rock, tree, cheese, and dollar. So that's the list of words. How would people normally approach committing that to memory? They would usually 
you know, they would write it out over and over again. They would read it over and over again or recite it to themselves over and over again until they feel they've drilled it into their head. It's a pretty boring approach. It isn't effective, especially not for long-term memory. If you manage to get it, you would only know it maybe for half a day, maybe a couple of days, but then all the words would start to vanish out of your head. So instead, we're going to think about those three principles that I talked about in the beginning, visualization, using other senses, make it crazy weird. And I'm going to guide you through a series of visuals, just like a little story that you're going to imagine in your mind. That's it. Here we go. So the first word was monkey. I just want for you both and people watching can follow along again. Just see a monkey in your mind. The monkey is dancing around. You can close your eyes if you want. The monkey is dancing around. It's making monkey noises, boop, 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 whatever a monkey would sound like. I'm working on the monkey impression, but the point here is to see and hear that monkey, all right? The monkey now picks up a gigantic iron like you would iron your clothes with, would probably be easy to visualize. So the monkey is dancing around with this giant iron. See this like a movie or cartoon playing in your head. That's it. The iron starts to fall, but a rope attaches itself to the iron. Maybe even feel the rope. Maybe it feels sort of rough, really interact with that rope. All right, you look up the rope, you see that the other end of the rope is attached to a kite. It's flying around in the air. You reach up and try and touch it, that kite. All right, you see the kite now, you watch it and crashes into the side of a house. Really see it smash into this house. The house you noticed is completely covered in paper for some strange reason. It's completely covered in paper. Picture that. The next word I had given you was paper. Out of nowhere, a shoe appears and it starts to walk all over the paper. Maybe it's messing up the paper as it's walking on it. Really see that shoe. The shoe smells pretty badly, so you decide to investigate and see why. You look inside of the shoe and you find a little smelly worm. A worm is crawling around inside of that shoe. Really see that worm. The worm jumps out of the shoe and into an envelope or envelope. Maybe it's going to mail itself or something. I don't know. But envelope was next. Out of thin air, magically, a pencil appears and it starts to write all over the envelope. Maybe it's addressing it, that pencil. The pencil now jumps into a river and there's a huge splash like you wouldn't expect when it hits the river. Next word I had given you was river. The river you notice is crashing up against a giant rock. It's crashing up against a giant rock. The rock flies out of the river. It crashes into a tree. Really see it smash into this tree. Just visualize that as best you can. This tree is growing cheese. You probably haven't seen a tree like that before. This one is growing cheese. And out of the cheese shoots a dollar. A dollar shoots out of the cheese. Last word I had given you was dollar. Now I'm going to run through this again, but in about just 20 seconds, that's it very quickly. And your job at this point is to simply replay through this little story that we've created in your mind. So we start off with a monkey. The monkey was dancing around with what? It was dancing around with an iron. What attached itself that you felt? It was a rope. The other end of the rope was attached to what? It was attached to a kite. What did that kite crash into? It crashed into a house. What was the house covered in? It was covered in paper. Something walked on the paper. What was it? It was a shoe. What was crawling around inside of that shoe? It was a worm. The worm then jumped into the envelope. What wrote on the envelope? It was a pencil. The pencil jumped into the river. 
The river was crashing up against what? It was a rock. The rock then flew into a tree. What was the tree growing? It was growing cheese. And what came out? It was a dollar. So now you should be able to recall pretty easily all of those random words by simply going through the story in your mind. Each major object that you see in the story will give you the next word. So hopefully Alex and Susie uh, and or one of you can give it a try or you can maybe do it like one person give one word, the next person give the next word, however you feel comfortable, but just at least give it a try. Try to recite those and people that watch this later can can follow along and see how they do. Should we do alternate ones, Alex? Okay, let's do alternate ones. So why don't you start? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Monkey. Iron. Rope. Kite. Um, uh, house. Paper. Shoe. And then there was a worm in the shoe, so worm. Envelope. Pencil. Yeah. Uh, river. Rock. Um, uh, river, rock. Uh, cheese? Is it cheese? It, it crashed into something that was growing cheese. It crashed a into tree, something. A tree. You got tree. it. Good. Then it was cheese. Then it was cheese. And then it was a dollar. Great job. Awesome. You guys did oh. really well. It's tough under pressure there. You know, I just sprung that on you out of nowhere. So, but you but guys did great, incredibly well. It's a good well. story. I, I absolutely get it. Yeah, I can see it very visually. And I think that's that's also helping these weird words to have some kind of connection. Yeah. Yeah. So something random that people would normally find pretty boring. Uh, this sort of approach makes it a lot easier. I'm sure people that watch this later will get most of the words, if not all of them. But I think that gives you an idea of how to incorporate those three principles to something, basically just improving your memory in general. And then later on, we can talk about how I would connect all of this these principles to remembering uh, vocabulary words in a foreign language. So if, so, so what's happening here essentially is, is, cause it, it reminds me a little bit of some of the vocabulary lists that I used to get, you know, which, which I never did very well in the test in, but then obviously the idea wasn't to memorize the, the list or the order of the words, but it was actually to remember what each of the words meant. Um, but, but it sounds like the idea here is just to create some kind of, connection some kind of meaning and some kind of context to de-randomize it is that right yeah we're just basically making uh we're making a lot more we're using more of the brain much more of the brain automatically by creating the visual by involving additional senses by taking advantage of that psychological aspect to memory making it crazy unusual extraordinary so we're using a lot of the brain and also it makes something boring like words on the list that would be useful at some point for you to know but you you didn't have that focus because you found it boring using this approach will make it more interesting to commit those words to to memory so you know again whenever you can visualize it see in your mind see how it's working uh, it's going to help. Um, but we can apply this even to things where at first you might have difficulty coming up with that visual. So I'll, I'll get into it now how I, I would use this kind of stuff in conjunction with Rosetta. So I've been going through Rosetta and kind of have an idea of how it works where it shows you a picture, right? And there's an audio uh, clip attached to the picture, right? So that works very, very well. Uh, I love that it has that visual component, 
I would, to just add another tool to your mental toolbox, incorporate some of these principles that I talked about. So for instance, in Russian, uh, for the word fork, uh, you know, when, that you would use when you're eating a fork, uh, it's vilka. And uh, if this were Rosetta Stone, you would see probably an image of a fork, or you would see a, a person holding a fork during a meal, right? And the audio would say vilka. But now you're going through, you're being tested, and you see the, the visual again of the guy holding the fork, and you might not remember what the audio said, right? It would be easier to recall what the audio said if, when you're initially presented with that picture, you imagine that the fork is poking some veal, or you take the fork and you pork some veal, you poke some veal, and as soon as you poke the veal, a crow flies out in your face and starts to caw at you, caw, caw, the crow is cawing, right? So, and you imagine that this actually happens. You see this happening in that Rosetta Stone visual. Right there, you are incorporating again, so much more of the brain. You're making the whole thing a, a much more interesting experience. So definitely when you're going through the vocab list, again, you see the visual, you're gonna remember instantly that it was Vilka. So that's one example. I can give you uh, some other examples later on if it's useful, but that's how I would incorporate my principles and use it in conjunction with a program like Rosetta Stone. That's really interesting because that that um, works with spelling as well. So I work on um, uh, a sort of spelling app, particularly for kids who have dyslexia or, or really struggle um, with spelling. And um, it's the visualization element that really helps. So, for example, to remember how to spell embarrassed, you can remember the R's as two red cheeks um, and you can visualize someone with, you know, blushing um, because they're embarrassed and you remember the two R's. So it's quite similar that I can, I can totally see how making a picture of it then will help it lodge in your memory. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly how I would help someone with spelling as well. So yeah, yeah it's very effective. Once you come up with that visual, it, it is more solidly locked into your memory. And, and is there a point, Chester, where we can kind of move on from those images we've created? Or if you learn Russian in this way, will every time you see a fork, you will see a veal and a crow flying out of it? Oh, no, no, no. Very good question. Very good question. No. So this, these uh, techniques are just to help you take the information from working memory, which is memory that lasts for a few seconds or less, into short-term memory, minutes, hours, days, eventually into long-term memory. So this just helps you get it into your long-term memory. Um, and eventually you're just gonna know that for a fork, the word is uh, vilka. So okay. now, now I just know it. Sense. Yeah, now I, now I just know it and can use it, but I needed that visual to initially help me lock it in there. Ah, okay. Okay, so I think with the spelling, it maybe works slightly different that you, you think of the two red cheeks that make you feel like an ass, so you get embarrassed at the end. And for me, I, I always think of that, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm using both long-term memory and short-term memory when I'm doing that, I'm not sure, but it's fascinating the way that you, you are sort of stimulating different parts of your brain. Jessica, could you just maybe tell us a little bit about short-term memory, long-term memory, and how that works? I mean, I think I've heard, it's one of those things you hear all sorts of facts about, but I'm not sure <laughs> which ones to believe. I've heard something like you need to see a word seven times for it to stay in mm. your memory or something like that. Yeah, so there are really three main types of memory, working memory, short-term memory, and long-term memory. A lot of people get confused as to the difference between working and short-term. So working, a really good example 
is, uh, you know, you're doing some sort of mental calculation. So you count up a number of items. You have to quickly remember how many you just counted to multiply that times three, right? So it's a very short window. Your brain needs to work with that information temporarily. That's a good example of working memory. It's a very short memory buffer. Um, Short-term memory then is minutes, hours, days, and then it might vanish from your memory. Long-term memory, an example that used to be given in psychology books, I wonder if they changed it now with everybody using phones, but it used to be uh, your own phone number was a really good example of something that was in your long-term memory, though nowadays some people don't even know their own phone number. Um, or your birthday is another good example of long-term memory. So information usually has to um, go along that path. It needs to go from working to short-term, eventually into uh, long-term. And again, these types of techniques just help you take that information and eventually get it into the long-term memory. The best way is to use these types of Techniques, I think, in conjunction with spaced repetition is really good for long-term memory. So 20 or 50 reviews done tonight, also known as cramming, uh, is only going to be, you're going to spit it out on the exam. And then after the exam, a lot of that information will vanish from your memory. So it's only good for short-term. For long-term, you would want to do your reviews, maybe, you know, uh, this would apply definitely to learning lang uh, language vocabulary, maybe review at the end of the week, a couple of weeks later a few weeks after that, spaced repetition is more effective for long-term memory. I suppose that's also one of the big advantages of um, Rosetta Stone's customized learning plans where you can tell it how often you want to study and it will remind you and, and it will keep a log of, of how often you've been going in and looking at your language because presumably like with all memory, consistency is key. Mm. Absolutely, so that's great that Rosetta has that, yeah. And Chester, like with, with things like the phone number, it is quite interesting that, you know, when, when I was a kid, we all had to memorize phone numbers. And I think I could remember about 10 or 15 really important ones. But nowadays, I know mine. And I think that's about it. I don't know anyone else's. Yeah, yeah. Um, is, is it getting harder for us now to remember things? Because we can just sort of outsource our memory to our smartphones. We don't have to remember facts. We can just Google them. We can Wikipedia them. You know, I mean, are we seeing kind of an effect of, of all that technology on our ability to remember things like language? Uh, definitely. So I, I call it dangerous digital dependency in some of my uh, talks that I do. Um, you know, phone numbers, we all used to be able to remember the phone numbers of so many friends, family members. My parents would give me emer emergency numbers that they thought were important for me to know in case of an emergency. We could all do that. But yeah, nowadays you give someone one phone number and they feel completely paralyzed. They cannot do it. They feel like they're almost handicapped in terms of their memory ability. It's because of this digital dependency. Another example, navigation. So you'll have people that have been driving in a city like Uber and Lyft for an example. Not This is not all Uber and Lyft drivers. I don't want to sound like I'm talking trash about them or something. Uh, but you know, some of them, you they may have been driving in a city for five plus years um, but if something's wrong with the network connection or something is wrong with the app, you, you'll just need to drive around until they can catch a signal or they'll need to restart their app. They won't even know some very basic locations, common landmarks in that city, even after driving for five years there. It's a good example, I think, of what happens when we completely shut off our brains and become 100% dependent on technology. We're just turning off that learning and memory portion of the brain. I think there is a little bit of uh, danger in it. 
But can we get that ability back, do you think? Or is it something which if we don't develop it from a young age, we're kind of at a disadvantage? No, really, you can develop your memory. You can keep it strong and, in fact, improve it really at any age. But you've just got to make it a point to to work on it. Just like, you know, I don't necessarily enjoy going to the gym, uh, on the, especially on certain days. I have to really drag myself there. But, um, you know, that's what's necessary. It seems boring and we don't want to go through the work of lifting the dumbbell, but that's how you get your muscles bigger, right? It's really the same for the memory muscle in the brain. You just got to use it and you can get it stronger. Um, but it is possible really at, at any age. At, you know, one of the best mental exercise, I guess I should, I usually talk about this in my talk, general talks, but this is the perfect time to mention it in this interview. One of the best ways that scientists say to build up your cognitive reserve, which is your potential resistance to Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, one of the best ways they say to do it is learning foreign languages. Yeah. It's one of the best forms of brain exercise to build up this cognitive reserve because you're just forcing your brain to really exercise and build so many new connections in your minds. Um, so it's one of the best ways to perhaps become resistant to forms of dementia. So the research is called cognitive reserve. If people want to look it up later and you'll find that learning languages is, is highly recommended for that. Yeah learning new things isn't it rather than sort of repeating the same thing over and over even if that's also exercising your brain yeah, yeah. absolutely and actually a guest we had on the last episode thomas back so uh, one of his specialties actually is um the warding off the onset of dementia and alzheimer's through learning languages and i mean previously he told me about some fascinating work he have been doing with an organization in scotland that goes into old people's homes and actually helps them to learn languages you know dementia papers eventually dementia patients, Alzheimer's patients and all that kind of thing. And I remember him telling me that kind of as they were learning languages and learning new words, all sorts of amazing memories or flashbacks would come up and they just start telling these stories. So there's definitely something really, really interesting about what learning a language does to the brain and the memory function. Yeah. So Susie, just, just as a final thought then for our listeners, what would your top tip be on learning vocabulary? Um, I have a, a, just two or three. One is read, read, read. It's an obvious one. It doesn't have to be reading, um, you know, Balzac or uh, Goethe or whatever. It doesn't have to be high literature, but just read as much as you can. Um, it can be magazines, uh, graphic novels. Um, just immerse yourself because the more exposure you have to vocabulary, obviously, the more you'll absorb it. Um, and I'm sure Chester will, will agree. There's a certain amount of sort of unconscious absorption of vocabulary as well, which is which is lovely because it just slips into your into your memory um and the other is just immersion i mean we talked about this before watch tv programs watch films listen to the radio there's a really strong chance when you're learning a foreign language that you will only understand 10 percent, maybe not even that but you're still listening to the rhythms and the sound of a language and just getting a feel for it and little words will start to shine through um and that for me is just a joy when i switch on german radio it takes me a little while actually to settle into it but then it's just i can just relax into it understand maybe 80 percent if they're talking quickly um but i but i love it and i definitely feel a little bit more fluent by the end of it absolutely and of course with social media and the internet you can also get so much access to foreign language um well you can get so much access to authentic foreign language just by going on specific twitter feeds by joining certain facebook groups or following certain accounts on instagram i know yeah i use that and then i also have to admit i sometimes use the automatic translate tool uh, yeah. with caution 
to try and get an idea of what <laughs> they're saying and then put it back to see if I can work it out. So that's a great ways to pick up some new vocabulary. And Chester, what would be your, your final tips to our listeners and how can they learn vocabulary in the most effective way and make the most of the amazing human capacity of memory? Yeah, I think uh, my top tip would be since most people, uh, a big issue is just certain words are too, too boring. They're not that interested. Try to think about the three principles that I talked about today, turning it into a visual, try to involve additional senses, make it que- you know, crazy, unusual, extraordinary in some way, build that little visual kind of story. Uh, I think if you do that, it's gonna be more interesting and making uh, the vocabulary more interesting is really gonna help your learning and memory. Absolutely, thank you so much, Chester. And I think my final tip would be that vocabulary is extremely important. It is the one part of language that you can communicate with even if you don't use anything else. You can always make yourself understood by just stringing words together, even with no grammar, if it comes to that. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and managed to get involved with the memory exercises that we ran through. I know I definitely learned some new techniques. So just to summarize for you, starting with the three principles from Chester, try your best to add visualization to your learning so that you really see what's happening. Then try to add additional senses and really make it as unusual as possible to lock it all in. Another great way to expand your vocabulary is to read and immerse yourself in your new language, whether that's on social media, from TV and films, radio or newspapers, and always try and find the vocabulary that is most relevant to you. Next week, I'm back with Susie to talk about a very special kind of vocabulary, slang. Where does it come from and how important really is it to you when you're learning a new language? To help us answer these questions, we'll be joined by Dr. Tanya Fahey-Palmer, a linguistics lecturer from Aberdeen University, and Henning Wien the UK's favourite German comedian. Also, just a quick reminder to go to rosettastone.co.uk forward slash podcast for those special offers on all Rosetta Stone courses, including their lifetime subscription. The link is in the episode description, so simply click there to start your language learning journey today. Finally, in our last episode on the 20th of May, myself and special guest Susie Dent will be answering your questions on learning a language. So if there's something that you'd like to know, just tweet at Rosetta Stone UK for a chance to be selected. Good luck.